0: In 1986, California signed into law some legislation that created the, quote, state task force to promote self-esteem and personal and social responsibility. As a political science professor put it at the time, it's just so California. I can't imagine Idaho having a task force on self-esteem. But the intentions seemed pure. Looking to the research in psychology, California state legislator John Vasconcelos discovered that self-esteem seemed to protect against a host of negative outcomes. So the task force was created to understand self-esteem and how we can nurture it to solve a bunch of social problems. It was a sign of a cultural shift to come. Self-esteem started creeping into the curriculum as schools developed programs to boost kids' self-esteem. For example, playing games where everybody complimented each other to make themselves feel good. Now, the research on self-esteem makes it clear that the outcomes of it are not always sunshine and happiness. Sometimes the pressure to have high self-esteem can be problematic on its own. But nevertheless, the notion of self-esteem, and the prize we put on it, has spread far and wide. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell. And you might be thinking, uh, what was all that self-esteem stuff at the top? Well, what else is self-esteem but an opinion we have of ourselves? I'm excited to talk to my friend, Dr. Ken Demery. He's an associate professor of psychology at the University at Buffalo. And in his early days of studying the psychology of attitudes and persuasion, he started to notice some parallels to the psychology of the self. This insight has inspired a bunch of interesting studies. So in our chat today, we'll talk about how opinion science can be used to understand things like self-esteem, how people sometimes desire opinions that they currently disagree with, and how some people just tend to be pretty confident in their views. So we, we had talked before about what... uh To cover in your expansive (laughs) line of work
1: you mean disjointed (laughs) uh, disorganized
0: (laughs) but i think i think the self idea is a through line that cuts through a lot of it right and so and that that as far as i understand emerged pretty early on so could you could you talk a little bit about i guess maybe first People who are outside of social psych or aren't super familiar. When we say the self that social psychologists study, the self, what do we mean? And I know that's a loaded, giant question, but I'm gonna force you to answer it anyway. <laughs> and it's, and like what? Yeah, like what? What are the what are the questions that fall under that?
1: I mean, the self is really challenging to define because I, I can't even think of an easy way to define it without somehow using the word self right. in, in the definition. But, you know, in terms of like our, our self-conceptions, you know, what we're talking about is kind of our mental representation of, of ourselves. And so just like any mental representation, whether it is, you know, your conception of what is a chair uh, to, you know, your conception of, you know, different groups, like a, a stereotype, um you know your mental representation of yourself is going to have all memories that are relevant to yourself the inferences and beliefs that you have about yourself the goals that you have about yourself you know so you know a a variety of different um sets of uh, of relevant constructs i guess so so you know whether they're again like you know these memories these inferences these goals and and so on important relationships and so you know our, our mental representation of ourself is probably, our, you know, one of our most elaborate, largest mental representations. Uh, and, you know, because of this, it, it's kind of, uh, you know, and obviously, it's centrally important to most of our decisions. And so because of these combinations of things, it's really important to, to study and understand. Um, in terms of, you know, what we're interested in, oftentimes, as attitudes researchers, Is self esteem. And so, self esteem, now we're getting at that evaluation of the self, the attitude of the self. You know, if you want to to go with the title of your podcast, the opinion that we have of ourselves. Um, And I think, you know, some of my initial observations um, were, you know, just the idea that we could take these initial concepts that we've studied in the attitudes literature to understand this really important attitude object, the self, you know, because this seems to be. Um, You know, a critically important, uh, you know, self esteem is a critically important evaluation. Um, You know, predicts a lot of, you know, mental health outcomes, well being outcomes, and and so on. So I thought it was interesting to understand how how I specifically got started in applying attitudes to the self. Research was actually started in a self seminar I started uh, or I took in grad school. And I remember reading, I think it was uh, Michael Kernis, uh, 2003 dating myself. Uh, It was a fresh, fresh off the press (laughs) papers at the time um, on optimal self-esteem. And in that paper, he was talking about how essentially self-esteem with particular qualities was particularly adaptive to have. And I don't know if I could remember the full list of all of those qualities, uh, but it included self-esteem being relatively stable self-esteem that was evaluatively congruent that he talked about in terms of implicit and explicit congruence. I think there was authenticity and there was was probably one or two other features that that he talked about in that paper on what optimal self-esteem was. And I just, you know, saw this as, you know, linking nicely to a lot of the research on attitude strength, but also Failing to appreciate some of the lessons that we had learned in the research on attitude strength, in particular, lessons about how different features of the attitude, although they may predict the strength of the attitude, they can be relatively independent. And like in the case of some of your own work, they can even interact with each other. And so, you know, this initial conception of optimal self esteem. Um, there seemed to be kind of lumping together things that potentially were different. I kind of saw that as uh, at least raising opportunities for uh, a little bit more nuance in terms of understanding different variables like, you know, ambivalence and certainty and accessibility and so on. Uh, so that was really how that work uh, got started.
0: So, so was Kernis saying that optimal self esteem is defined by those properties of? being internally consistent and stable. Is that what you're saying?
1: Th- that's my memory. It's been yeah. a long time since <laughs> I read that paper, honestly.
0: Which is all to say that, like, I think what you're getting at is if we define, let's say, optimal self-esteem as being internally consistent, right? You could say, oh, well, internal consistency might be an informative quality of your self-esteem, but it is not itself necessarily like the determinant of what's optimal. Is that kind of what you mean?
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I mean, Curtis had a different interest in focusing on this optimal self-esteem. He was looking at things like, you know, defensive responding, uh, for example. Um, And I kind of, you know, where my initial thoughts went uh, were that, well, this really sounds a lot like um, attitude strength, uh, you know, applied to the self, uh, which means that there's a lot of different outcomes we potentially could look at uh, such as, you know, whether it's stability over time, resistance to change, uh, the ability of my self-conceptions, conceptions to predict relevant outcomes. Um, and, you know, arguably, you know, some of the things that Kern has talked about might have fit under those, uh, umbrellas. Um, I'm sure, you know, if you look back at my term paper from <laughs> 2003, I, I talked a little bit about that. Um, but, but so that, that kind of, uh, motivated me to start including, you know, measures of, you know, Self strength, in other words, these these measures related to the strength of our self conceptions, just uh, up, you know, exporting these attitude strength variables uh, to the self.
0: It might, it might help to to give an example as well. So the, I guess there are the the one that always comes to mind for me is the ambivalence one, the self ambivalence one. Um, I, I don't know why that one in particular, but, <laughs> but maybe you could uh, look someone who has like, several papers
1: on ambivalence, yeah, so maybe that's I. the one. <laughs>
0: uh, but so like. I I guess it's just a good example to to be able to show, like, okay, what does attitude strength mean? What does it mean Mm -hmm. for things to predict a strong opinion? And how could we just take that, lift it, and place it on the self, and and make new predictions that aren't that new? If you know about attitude strength,
1: (laughs) yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things we know, so I mean, ambivalence is you know ambivalence. So you know, you've got both valences, positive and negative. Uh, within an evaluation. So if it's, you know, an attitude towards, you know, my cell phone, um, you know, i got some positive aspects of it that I like, uh, some negative aspects of it that I do not like. So, you know, whether it's positive things like the camera quality, the negative aspects like the battery life. And so I may have an ambivalent attitude towards my cell phone if I have a lot of both positives and negatives at my head in the same time. And you know, one of the things that this might uh, predict is how malleable my attitude is, how susceptible my attitude is to, um, to persuasion attempts, for example. So if I see um, you know, an advertisement for a competing uh, cell phone model that says, you know, m- mine is crappy for some reason that I should buy theirs, uh, I might be very susceptible to that because I'm already ambivalent. I've already got some positives and some negatives. And maybe you know, this might help me resolve that ambivalence by latching on to uh, these These new arguments, especially if they provide new information, and so you know so that's one one way that ambivalence um, in you know an evaluation generally might predict instability, for example. And so we looked at this in in one paper where we measured people's ambivalence towards the self, and so I don't know if you want to go into the the details of like objective ambivalence versus subjective ambivalence, like the objective ambivalence that's the kind of that presence of both positives and negatives. Uh, where the subjective ambivalence, that's more the experience of uh, feeling conflicted, feeling torn, uh, feeling confused, and so on. And so we had tried to look at more objective ambivalence uh, in some work that was using relatively subtle change manipulation. So uh, some of those we used uh, conditioning, so kind of pairing positive and negative words with the self you know, me, myself, uh, I forget what the exact words were, uh, but it's it's probably very close to me, myself and I. (laughs) Um, So, you know, pairing uh, positive words in one condition, neutral words in another condition. And, you know, the more people felt ambivalent about themselves, you know, the more likely they were to change, I guess, you know, the more they had the objective ambivalence, not feeling ambivalent, but rather, uh, the more they had both positive and negative features. Ah, uh, the more susceptible they to change they were in response to that manipulation. And so, yeah, we we did that in a couple of of different ways. You know, it's a uh, older old, old older paper. Uh, so I, I don't know I, if I was to do it again, I would certainly do it with uh, better sample sizes <laughs> and better tighter methods than than I would do it today.
0: But the idea is pretty straightforward. So so if I already see myself as having good qualities and bad qualities, I'm more susceptible to being nudged either to see myself as a little more positive or as a little more negative, right? Because I'm yeah, already yeah. kind of, I don't have yeah. like a clear, perfect, fully constructed sense that I'm either good or bad. And so I can be nudged to see myself in a slightly different way. Exactly.
1: And I, I don't know, honestly, if we were, I, I, we, we didn't include the negative condition, at least mm. in, in that case, that was, you know, there were some ethical concerns, sure. <laughs> uh, or at least, you know, with, with the paradigm that we'd adapted, like, They were also unwilling to try to make people dislike themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we'd guess that these effects are not particularly long lasting, uh, but it's better to be safe (laughs) anyway than than not do
0: that. So are there other qualities of the self that you could that someone could look at in order to know, for example, how changeable someone's self-esteem would be?
1: Yeah, certainly. You know, so we talked about ambivalence, or we, yeah, we talked about ambivalence. But you know, you can look at accessibility, or certainty, or importance, and a lot of these have actually been looked at in the self literature. Uh, some by myself, some by other people at, at different times. Uh, so, like with the example of self-esteem accessibility. Uh, so we're talking about how easy, easily one's attitude towards the self comes to mind. Uh, It's kind of based off of earlier work by Ross Fazio, who looked at attitude accessibility in general. And what his work has found is that the more um, accessible a person's attitudes are, the more those attitudes guide behavior. Um, So you know, if your attitude towards a political candidate is very accessible in your mind, you're more likely to actually go out and vote for that candidate. Um, More likely to predict information processing. So uh, if you saw that candidate uh, giving a debate performance, you're more likely to interpret that performance to be in line with your attitude, to the extent that the attitude is active in your mind, uh, and also you know more stable over time, more resistant to change, and, and so on. Uh, so when we applied that work to the self, we had people complete you know self-esteem measure or self-attitude measure. Uh, so, you know, some, sometimes we just use like the Rosenberg Self-Esteem Scale. Sometimes we adapt standard attitude semantic differential scales, so you know, positive, negative favorable, unfavorable uh, in people's attitudes towards the self. Uh, and when we do that approach, we can kind of compare how quickly they respond to those specific attitude items that refer to the self to how they respond to very similar questions on other topics uh, to get an idea. You know, I think we included things as mundane as paper plates, uh, Mexican foods, college football, Though with college students, that might be a, a highly important attitude uh, that they might respond to very quickly on. But we try to see, you know, compared to their baseline level of of accessibility of attitudes, how accessible is their self or the self-esteem specifically.
0: So okay, just, just to pause, when you say compared to the baseline, is it actually like a difference? Like if my self-positivity comes to mind quicker than how much I love, you know, tacos or whatever you said, that that's what I'm talking about? Or is it just sort of like you just control for like, how fast do I respond to stuff
1: we actually, this was something that, uh, I forget which paper it was, but, but, you know, Fazio and his collaborators had used this in, in one of their papers, essentially computed a within person Z-score. So like across the, you know, 10, 12 issues that we had people respond on where, you know, for, for their mean and their standard deviation response time on this same, you know, nine point uh, attitude scale, where, you know, in that distribution does their self-evaluation uh, response time fall.
0: Hmm. So, like, do do I respond to myself much more quickly than I respond to other stuff? Much less quickly, relative to just how I tend to evaluate stuff.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, so so yeah. For for each person, you know, on average, people respond, if I remember correctly, reasonably quickly uh, on the self compared to some of those other topics. But you know, if 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 my self esteem is especially accessible, I'm especially responding quickly compared to you even if our level of self-esteem is different, if I'm responding more quickly, I may be more likely to act in line with my self-esteem, for example, than you are. And so, you know, one of the ways that we looked at kind of acting in line with my self-esteem is we gave people ambiguous personality feedback. Uh, so kind of these Barnum statements, like, you know, the sort of statements you'd see in a horoscope, like yeah. <laughs> there are times when you're this, but at other times you're this other thing. Uh, And, you know, people read these and, you know, generally find them to be quite accurate. But, you know, we we also found that people tend to interpret them in line with their pre-existing views of the self. So if people are higher in self-esteem, they saw that information as portraying them in a more positive light compared to if they had lower self-esteem. And, you know, so that's kind of the general, like, Attitude predicting an information processing bias, you know, you know, an attitude, in this case, self-esteem predicting how they interpret this attitude relevant information, this person, you know, feedback that's specifically about them supposedly. But what's critical is that it's the people whose self-esteem is more accessible, more active in their mind. They were the ones who were particularly showing that bias and the people whose uh, self-esteem was less accessible, uh, who were responding less quickly, they didn't show that bias or didn't show it as much
0: so being able to go from the ideas of accessibility and ambivalence from attitudes to the self kind of requires you to say that self-esteem is an opinion like any other which i know is is the part of this that can ruffle feathers especially for people who are self-esteem researchers <laughs> and so i guess the, the question is to what extent do you think we could we we should say self-esteem this thing we're constantly talking about Is an opinion of yourself just like I have opinions of restaurants in my neighborhood of political candidates of anything else?
1: I'm certainly willing to to make that statement (laughs) having (laughs) done so quite a bit already. Yeah. So, I mean, I I think, I I don't know that it's necessarily very controversial um, because if you look at a lot of definitions of self-esteem, they talk about it as an evaluation of the self. Um, Some people do specifically define it as people's feelings towards the self, so they're trying to get it more affective in nature, uh, where you know a general evaluation we would think is is broader than just affect. We'd have you know cognition, maybe behavior as well, as, as part of the attitude. But I think you know for a lot of definitions of, of uh, self-esteem, you know attitude is very clearly related, uh, very clearly relevant. Yeah. So I don't don't think that it's it's necessarily controversial, but you know just because definitionally it's not controversial, people may still have a hard time believing that that this literature is relevant, um, and I think some of those concerns are valid. You know, if you look at some of our persuasion studies where you're using completely novel issues that you're presenting to undergraduates uh, to to read about, well, okay, so these. Per- a particular set of factors can lead someone to change, change their attitude. I'm putting change in scare quotes here because it's an attitude they may not have had before because it's a novel issue where the self-esteem people have an immense amount of relevant information and experience that feeds into that attitude. So I think, you know, in a lot of ways there are additional properties that probably exist on a continuum um, but that the self-esteem is at the far end of that continuum on in terms of how important it is how much experience uh, it is how embedded it might be in a person's social networks and social roles and and, and so on so uh, because of that you know it may not be an easy direct uh, translation of ideas from attitudes uh, to the self uh, always and I, I think the same could apply for example to, to prejudice uh, where you know our prejudice you know our Attitudes towards a social group, like that's essentially what prejudice is, but they're often imbued with so much additional stuff beyond what we would often look at in, you know, more mundane uh, persuasion studies, for example, in in the lab.
0: To to that point, it's making me think that it's surprising that anyone would have a weak sense of self at all. Right. If there was if there was any issue that followed me around every minute of my life (laughs) that I have that immense backlog of information about, you'd say, well, you I mean, that's you've got the makings of, of having a strong take on this issue. Do you have any sense of like how common it is that people would have a relatively weak sense of self and and, and why? How, how, do you, how do you get there? I guess the ambivalence thing I, I could see being the road, but the accessibility thing, like how do I just like, oh yeah, that's right, I'm here. <laughs>
1: um, well, I mean, accessibility, if you're ambivalent, it's very hard to have an accessible summary evaluation. You know, if, if the things that come to mind are a mixture of positive and negative, then, you know, there's going to have to be some process that resolves that ambiguity before you can say, you know, this, this is this is where I stand. And I, and I don't know, you know, in terms of work on accessibility, there's very little that's looked at, like, component accessibility. Uh, so, you know, newbie Clark has some work, um, you know, suggesting that, yeah, when both positives and negatives are accessible, people feel conflicted, but it doesn't necessarily go the additional... Step of, you know, what what are the consequences of having, you know, accessible positive and accessible negative? Um, does both the, you know, does both the positive and negative bias ambiguous information? Does both the positive and negative, you know, impact your behavior? And and so, you know, those are things that are less clear, uh, especially with respect to self esteem. I think we understand a little bit more uh, with, with attitudes. But, but probably still uh, not enough.
0: So, so it sounds like you're saying ambivalence is, is like the road to having a weak sense of self.
1: Not, yeah, I, I think ambivalence is a big part of it, uh, but probably not the only part. So our self-esteem is also embedded in a social and cultural context that communicates certain messages to us. And especially in the West, those messages are that you're supposed to like yourself. You're supposed to love yourself. Um, you know, this is why we get participation trophies so that we continue to feel good about ourselves. And so if I don't feel good about myself, I'm still getting these messages that I'm supposed to feel good about myself. I might adopt them as evaluative goals. Like I want to like myself. I want to have a positive opinion towards myself, but I'm faced with the reality that I don't particularly have a positive attitude towards myself. And certainly in some of my work, we've shown that this does predict the experience of ambivalence over and above the the presence of um, positive and negative evaluations. Just kind of this desire to be more positive also adds another layer to me feeling conflicted or feeling like I don't have a clear sense of of who I am. Uh, So I think, you know, that that's another way that it can be problematic. But you know, ultimately, you know, I think you know, ambivalence is is a big one and an important one, especially just because it it gets at what is inherently the problem, like that there's so much knowledge and information that we have about the self that it's sometimes hard to have a clear, uh, coherent, succinct evaluation. And yeah, I, I think that that ends up being a, a big part of it. Now, looking at more specific self views. Um, so you know we're talking about self-esteem here, which is very global. Uh, but we can think about self-evaluations in specific domains, and you know those domains can differ in a variety of different ways. So imagine like the musical domain. Uh, so I you know being musical or having you know I, I evaluate my musical abilities as relatively low, but I also view them as unimportant to who I am. I, like I you know I'm not invested in my low musical abilities. So you know, so I think when you get at more specific evaluations beyond the global self-esteem, then things like you know importance or knowledge and, and so on can start to uh, become important as well. Uh, because in in more specific domains, I may not have a lot of knowledge uh, about who I am or where I stand in a particular domain, and a particular domain could vary in how important it is to me, and so on.
0: I, I wanted to go back to the the idea of this prescriptive part of self-esteem that it's this thing mm. we're supposed to have. And you go, you should, you'd better want <laughs> to, to feel good about yourself, which tees us up to talk about the the other work that, that we talked about uh, talking, that we talked about talking about. <laughs> <which is laughs> it sounds like that. Oh my
1: about God. About yeah.
0: <laughs> so there's another direction, but uh, th- this idea that we can want opinions that we don't already have. And so the example I, I have of this is from, You had given a talk on this and I think I reached out to you about this. So you had given a talk later that day, I went home, I turned on a TV show that was super popular and I was just so underwhelmed by just not really liking it. And I caught myself in that moment saying, I wish I liked this show. And I went, (laughs) wait a minute. I know someone who knows something about that. So, so what, what does it mean sort of in general, this idea of desiring attitudes And where did the the idea that that is important come from?
1: I'll start with the, I mean, where the idea originally came from was, I was doing all of this work that was applying concepts from the attitudes literature to understand the self. And I thought it really should be a two way street. And so I sat down with Christian Wheeler uh, when he was uh, visiting Columbus, um, this was towards the, the end of grad school, and we'd kind of had a brainstorming session uh, talking about uh, what you know what concepts from the self-literature aren't really being studied and aren't really being understood in the attitudes literature. And one of them was just the general idea of self-regulation, um, where there hadn't been a lot done on, on attitude. Regulation uh, beyond kind of like motivated reasoning uh, sorts of things, and so we didn't even really have this idea that like do people have evaluative goals, and so that, that was where the the original idea came from. And so I think we started off uh, to some extent using you know, Higgins' conceptualization of um, that you know you have you know who you actually are, and then you have different you know standards that you might have and they're, they're who you feel you ideally would be or who you feel you ought to be. Uh, so in our you know very first studies, we just applied those kind of Higgins selves questionnaires, I think is what it's called, to attitudes. So whether it was, you know, if I just included these as kind of filler measures uh, in other studies. Uh, so like, uh, okay, I need, I need a filler. So we'll, we'll ask people about a bunch of questions about abortion and included in those are questions of, you know, hey, sometimes the attitudes we actually have might be different from the attitudes that we want to have. And sometimes these might be the same. So, you know, using the scales below, please indicate the actual attitude you have towards abortion. Please indicate the attitude you feel like you ideally want to have towards abortion. And please indicate the attitude you feel you ought to have towards abortion. And so, you know, that, that was kind of the initial starting point was just looking at, you know, first, are people going to give us different answers to begin with? Um, and you know, we certainly consistently find that they do give us different answers. So, you know, obviously, we're trying to pick issues that um, that people may have discrepancies on. Um, but typically, you know, the neighborhood of fifty percent is not at all uncommon. Um, the self is actually one of the more common ones, uh, where you know sometimes uh, you know two thirds of participants will report wanting a different attitude. They, you know, almost universally, they wish they were more positive towards themselves uh, than they actually are. Uh, but for other issues, you see, you know, the opposite pattern, or you know, a, a mixture of you know people wanting to be more positive or more negative. Uh, and so, you know, some of the in- initial work, um, you know, looked at you know the you know this is essentially an evaluative conflict. It's a, a different one than we normally talk about. Um, it's not just, you know, the presence of positives and negatives in my actual opinion, it's that I want to be somewhere else. And so, you know, if I'm, if I'm acting on who I want to be, then that's going to you know, pull me or push me in a different direction from how I actually view myself. And so that's kind of creates some evaluative tension. So, you know, we, we've found that, you know, these discrepancies pretty consistently predict The experience of ambivalence, the subjective ambivalence, feeling conflicted, um, you know, across a variety of different issues, including uh, the self and self-esteem. But, you know, then kind of try to see, well, do people do things that might help them to get where they want to be? Uh, So, you know, if if I if I want to like broccoli more, will I engage in things that might help me to actually like broccoli more? Uh, So we've never done this with with broccoli. Uh, We did do it with coffee, uh, at least you know, brought uh, people into the lab, um, told them it's a study, you know, a taste testing study. Uh, At The very beginning of the study, we had them fill out a little form like, okay, we're gonna do do a taste test study, um, but we wanna make sure that we prepare the coffee um, in a way that suits your preferences. Please, you know, fill out this little form uh, to say how you want your coffee prepared. And so we showed them, you know, uh, the 12 ounce cup that we were going to fill up with coffee. And so how many you know, creams and sugars do you want in your coffee essentially? Um, and so what we were thinking is that if people want to like coffee more, that they might try to change coffee in a way that might make it more enjoyable. Uh, so it's the same idea like, you know, if you wanna like exercising more, you might choose to exercise with a friend because that's gonna make the activity of exercising more enjoyable. So if I wanna like coffee more, putting sugar and uh, dairy into the uh, into the coffee might cause me to like it more. Uh, I think we had both dairy and non-dairy creamer. So the uh, <laughs> v- vegans were allowed to uh, to make their coffee more palatable as well. Um, and so then while the researchers were um, making the cup of coffee for them, and you know, we had a Keurig machine, so it was like a standardized cup of coffee, um, you know, that's when people reported their actual and their desired attitudes. And, and so even though we hadn't made their actual and their desired attitudes salient ahead of time, um, people who wanted to be, you know, the more people wanted to be positive towards, their, towards coffee, the more they had essentially doctored up their coffee, the more, the more they had added to the coffee, especially if they were committed to being uh, more positive towards coffee. Uh, so in in some of the the later work on that topic, we kind of looked at that commitment variable to see um, is it just a different way of you know when we're asking we're measuring people's actual and desired attitudes, are we really just measuring their attitude in different ways, or is their desired attitude really something that's kind of goal-like? Uh, so trying to you know the the measure of commitment was a way to try to get at that idea. And so the commitment measure predicted stronger influence of people's desired attitudes, but it didn't have the same moderating role for people's actual attitudes so kind of getting at the idea that this is a goal that people have or at least you know the people who are committed to it have
0: the The thing about it that seems a little different from the other kind of evaluative conflict where it's just there are pros and cons and that makes me conflicted is that i don't i still don't have an end state that I'm looking for other than to understand and to pick a side. Right. Whereas with the desired attitude, I go, I want to go there. So mm-hmm. I'm looking to move in this direction. Whereas regular old ambivalence, I go, I just push me in one direction. I don't really care. I just want to resolve this idea. Right. So one is directional and one is directionless.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, you know, ambivalent stuff is not necessarily completely directionless, you know, if I'm, if I'm leaning towards one way, I know it's easier to, to go that way than to go the other way. Um, but yeah, I mean, this this d- desired attitudes definitely have, you know, d- directionality is a much more clear aspect of this. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we want to study, we, you know, we've got some, you know, ongoing work trying to understand, you know, where do these desired attitudes come from? Either in terms of, you know, purely come from, uh, sometimes be these things that are, embedded in like our ideological networks or other things that may be hard to get at uh, the true cause and effect relationships. Um, but you know, we have some preliminary data at least that my desired attitudes tend to be more consistent with my ideology than my actual attitudes are, for example. Uh, so, you know, like you know, our ideologies, especially these days are, are very much like identities. Uh, so, you know, our, our social identities, our other goals, um, you know, th- these are, things that we think may be very relevant in terms, you know, drivers of our desired attitudes, mm-hmm. you know, with the case of coffee, you know, it's, it, for those undergraduate students, it wanting to like coffee more could have, you know, been for social reasons, like, oh, my, my friends hang out at the cool coffee shops and I want to, <laughs> you know, I want to enjoy my time with them. So if I like coffee more, it'd be better. Uh, or it could be just purely utilitarian. Like, uh, man, if I enjoyed coffee, I could stay up later at night and uh, cram for my final a little bit better. Um, but either way, it'd be in the service of some some goal.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I had never put this together until now, but there's research showing, as you know, that if my opinion is different from a loved one's opinion, that creates this, this feeling of tension. But I, I wonder if you'd say that all of what that is is a is a desired attitude, right? Uh, really, the reason I feel conflicted is because I wish we agreed. <laughs> I may, maybe I wish you would come to my side, right? I <laughs> guess that could be part of it. But it could also be like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I saw things your way, right? That would just make everything go more easily. And that's what the tension is about.
1: No, that's, I mean, that's a good question. We certainly, you know, in, in our original paper, looking at ambivalence, um, you know, we did, measure in this interpersonal ambivalence uh, in in at least one study. I think it was, the topic was practicing safe sex. Uh, so we asked people for the attitudes of their current or most recent romantic partner. Because, you know, obviously, you know, not just, you know, leading to ambivalence, like could lead to actual interpersonal conflict mm-hmm. if you and your <laughs> partner disagree in your attitudes uh, towards practicing safe sex. Um, you know, in, in that work, you know, we found that, um, you know, objective ambivalence, interpersonal ambivalence, and this these actual desired attitude discrepancies independently predicted uh, feelings of conflict. Um, but that's not to say that interpersonal ambivalence couldn't be reduced to desired attitudes because the desired attitudes could also be coming from people's health and safety goals the pressures that they feel to you know be an upright citizen so like you know those desired attitudes may be coming from a variety of sources one of which could certainly be um, their romantic partner's uh, preferences so
0: yeah it it strikes me just that these social goals would be a pretty potent predictor of desiring an attitude you don't already have right In, in a sort of yearning for belonging right like when when the world loves a TV show that I think is stupid, you go, yeah. it would be way easier if I liked it because I could like talk to you. Or I feel this way about like football, right? I have no <laughs> real affinity for it, but I know how much small talk I would be able to make <laughs> if I really did like it, right? And so, yeah, so these social goals would seem like they would create desired opinions um, that, that are distinct from the ones that I have.
1: Yeah, I I absolutely agree with that. So, yeah, whether it's, you know, individual relationship goals or, you know, broader social goals uh, related to our identities, for example, um, I I think that can can be a very powerful drivers. And that's, you know, in part why we're starting with ideology to look at this also because ideology has more clear set of attitudes that might be related to it, uh, where other social goals uh, you might have to look at it in a more ideographic way rather than rely on these uh, kind of broader normative. Um, you know, conservatives tend to be more in favor of the death penalty and liberals tend to be more opposed. Uh, you know, that, that that way of thinking is is a, a little bit easier for us to look at uh, methodologically.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I wanted just as by way of, of maybe wrapping up, I, I also wanted to ask you about the certainty, the, your very recent certainty uh, mm-hmm. paper in part because I know it's there's a there's a story to it in that it's been a sort of a maybe not a st- story is the wrong way to put it but just that it's <laughs> it, it's been an evolving project over yeah. a, a long time and so I'm curious to kind of get your take on where that came from but also because as I was thinking about it in the context of asking you about opinion and the self it sort of strikes me that like oh it on the surface isn't about the self and isn't exactly about these other things. But it's this idea that's still like me, the person, I'm either like a generally confident person, like that's part of who I am, or I, I'm the type of person who tends not to see, t- tends not to feel super confident in the things that I'm thinking. So could you just sort of give a little bit of a look into w- why go down the road of looking at certainty as something about a person? Yeah. <laughs> and, and and what new insight that brings to our in, our understanding of opinion?
1: Yeah, so I'll I'll start off by just kind of describing what what the project is, and, and the project essentially found that there is a disposition, or at least a, a tendency, for people to be certain across a wide range of their opinions. Uh, so you know, if I am certain of my attitude towards canoeing, I'm also likely to be certain of my attitude towards Japan, which you know presumably are, are relatively unrelated issues. But if I'm the type of person who tends to be certain in general, I'm likely to be certain of both of those attitudes. And as you mentioned, this is a bit of, was an evolving project. Where it originally started was actually with that self-strength work, where we found that people who were reporting that they were certain of their level of self-esteem seemed to be acting certain in a variety of other ways. And I think it took us a while to kind of the, the reason it, it, it took so long is is we because we initially found it with self esteem certainty. I think we initially anchored on that more than we should have, and didn't kind of uh, realize that this seems to be a general evaluative certainty. Uh, and so, you know, the 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 version of the paper that is is published. Uh, kind of neglects the uh, you know earlier kind of uh, sidetrack in our thinking, uh, but you know from before we were willing to just take a step back and see, think about what we really had. Uh, but you know, you know, but ultimately what we had is that yeah, people who are certain of one attitude tend to be certain of other attitudes, and if you know you know how certain a person is in their attitudes in general, you can predict how certain they're going to be in an attitude that they haven't yet formed yet. Uh, So like, you know, in that study, we would measure the disposition to be certain just by essentially asking people, you know, 16 different issues, their attitude and their associated certainty, um, you know, towards things like kayaks and uh, Japan and cold showers and, you know, a a variety of other, you know, reasonably unrelated topics. Um, And, you know, those, you know, the certainty in these different attitudes, they, they hang together, but they also when participants later read some amazon.com reviews for uh, a made up microwave oven, their resulting attitude and critically, their certainty in that attitude, we can predict from those those earlier measures. So uh, if you were certain in your attitude towards Japan uh, and kayaks and cold showers, you're likely to be certain of your attitude towards towards this microwave oven. Not only that, but you, it seems that people who are certain of their attitudes in general seem to be more likely to act on their attitudes in general. I, I will admit that the findings were, were mixed. We found those pretty consistently with undergraduate samples, uh, found them less consistently uh, with a more general, uh, general range of the adult population. So, and I think part of it is the issues that we were asking about, things like eating meat, uh, you know, so how many servings of meat did you have in the past week? How many cups of coffee uh, did you drink in the past week? These, a lot of these are habitual behaviors. Uh, so at least this is our thinking. You we'll know, fully admit that it's, you know, post hoc conjecture, uh, at least for now, uh, is that, you know, these are things that might be driven by attitudes for someone who is 18, 19, 20 years old, but for your typical, you know, 40 year old uh, like myself, 40 something like myself um, you it's just a habit like every morning I have coffee I don't have to consult my attitudes uh, so uh, at least that, that's our thinking but you know it's fascinating that at least for college students knowing how certain they are in general allows us to predict whether other attitudes will predict corresponding behaviors. so there's a general tendency for um, you know for people who are more certain to have their attitudes guiding their behaviors. Uh, to a greater extent than the people who report less certainty. Uh, so, yeah, we we found it kind of interesting, fascinating. So, I found that both with kind of behavioral intentions, so people's plans to behave in the coming week, as well as you know, not real behavior, but the reports of behavior within the past week.
0: Does that cut across domains? I'm trying to think, like, your if I know how much how how much certainty you have about your food preferences does that tell me how much certainty you have about your political preferences, right? I, I, it sounds like that's where we're heading, but I'm just curious, how, how far do you think that that extends?
1: Um, that's a good question. I would imagine that there's going to be some specificity, but the specificity is going to be driven less by your general tendency and more by kind of idiosyncratic factors. And so, you know, the reason that we're looking at things like you know, kayaks and Japan and cold showers is those are not t- issues that people have thought a lot about necessarily, or at least on average, uh, American participants have not thought a lot about those specific issues. Those specific issues may not be tied to their identities and, and so on. Uh, so, you know, we're looking at these dis- disposition to be certain, we're not saying that the these dispositional factors are all that matter. And so when you get into specific domains, other things start to matter. So, um, you know, politics and food, I think were the, the two examples you just gave. Well, you know, for someone who's a foodie, because they're really interested in food, they may think a lot about, um, you know, topics related to foods. Uh, but for someone who's, uh, you know, an NPR junkie, uh, maybe it's, you know, news that fascinates them, politics fascinates them. So they may have thought a lot about politics. And those are not reflective necessarily of their general tendencies, those are reflective of more specific interests or how much knowledge and expertise they have on a specific issue. So, you know, when looking at this dispositional work, we're not saying that the disposition is all that predicts uh, how certain a person will be, you know, that it's you know, at a default level for, for things that people don't have those more idiosyncratic experiences with or, uh, you know, unique ties to identity or importance or whatever it might be, uh, that's where the dispositions are going to matter most. Uh, and where those other factors uh, become increasingly important, then issue-specific kind of interactions with the topic are going to matter more.
0: Great. I I want to be mindful of your time. I feel like I've taken (laughs) more of it than I promised. Um, But I just wanted to say thanks for uh, stopping by to to talk about all this stuff. And I'll be curious to see what the next steps are, as always.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I enjoyed talking with you. Uh, Yeah, easily easily could have talked much longer, but I ran out of water.
0: All right, that'll do it for another episode of Opinion Science. Thank you so much to Ken Demery for coming on. As always, check out the show notes for a link to his lab's website and links to the research we talked about. You can support the show by doing all the podcast things. Subscribe to the show. Learn more at opinionsciencepodcast.com and follow on social media at opinionscipod. Ooh, this outro was short and sweet today. I like that. Okay, see you in a couple weeks for more Opinion Science. (music) Bye-bye.